Hello, this is Frank Falvey, your host for a journey toward a more perfect union. And this morning, we're going to take up the delightful subject of music. And music has always been with the human beings. And the first instrument was the voice. And if you've ever heard the, uh, the throat singers of Tibet, you'll understand that instrument and how wonderful it is. Well, every culture, every geographical area, every religious organization over the centuries has always had and developed musical sounds. I believe the voice came first and then instruments came. Different types of, of string instruments, of uh, reeds that were growing. So the instruments have always been geographically, religiously, they've been ethnic. And the subjects that these songs have taken have been sadness, have been dance, have been emotional things, have been protest songs, have been songs about your own culture. Now, I can't sing one note. I can't distinguish one key from another key, but I have always loved listening and I've always loved music. Part of that is I'm a United Methodist and John Wesley believed in singing. If you open a United Methodist hymnal, the first thing you come to is his instructions on how to sing. In the 18th century, how did men and young women meet? They met in a musical class where they were taught how to do shape note singing. Singing not by the note, but by the shape of the note. So the wide variety of music is absolutely incredible. In this area, not only do we have the New England Conservatory of Music, we have Berkeley College. And before the coronavirus, we had the Christmas revels at Sanders Theater, bringing in the midwinter solstice and Christmas. We had the Boston Pops and the Christmas at Symphony Hall, along with the spring concert, along with the 4th of July. Here in Franklin, I used to film the Circle of Friends Coffee House in the old Masonic Temple. There's the Franklin School of Performing Arts. There's the Black Fox. I used to go to venues like Charlestown, Rhode Island. There is a Rhythm and Roots Festival that happens on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before Labor Day. And then on Labor Day, I would go to Lawrence, where for 10 years, I was the treasurer of the Bread and Roses Festival that celebrated the strike of 1912 and the women that went out on strike because the state legislature cut their hours from 56 to 54 and the people that owned the mills cut their pay. And so they went all out on strike. So music has played a integral part. Musicians that are working musicians, this coronavirus, they are one of the many different occupations that have absolutely been devastated, forgotten, and have no publicity like the restaurant owners have publicity. There's a whole segment of people we have forgotten 
but the music still continues, even virally or over the internet. And people that had small bands that didn't do this professionally still are figuring out ways that they can get in their garage or rooms and still be a part and do the music. So with that having been said, where would you like to begin? I'd love to start off this uh, conversation because I, w- I was actually thinking about this uh, this morning when I woke up. Is It's been about a year now since the um, state of emergency was declared uh, by the governor. And I want to share with you where I was on the night before it was declared, because I think it really fits in with where we were. And I actually uh, I posted on my Facebook page about this. Um, so I was in a place, a, a performance venue, that's called the Fallout Shelter. And it happens to be in Norwood, Massachusetts. And I was there to see a band called The Restless Age. And I, ne- I didn't know going into that, that that would be the last night that I'd be seeing live music in a performance venue. And it's, it's been over a year now. And a couple of the songs that they sang really, you know, kind of painted the portrait of what we were going to go through for the next year. One of the songs was Murky Water. And another one was called Change on a Dime which is exactly what we have been called upon to do uh, over the course of this year. And it's, it's just amazing how um, art and music can sort of frame what's going on in our lives and allow us an opportunity to sit back and see through either a visual presentation or a musical presentation uh, some of the experiences we have in life. And, and that sticks out in my mind because that's the last time I sat and saw uh, live music uh, in over a year. And I'm so looking forward to getting back to it because, uh, like you, I get so much joy out of uh, listening to music and out of playing music. I'm feeling mighty strange and I can't believe something's really wrong with me. I just took the Good 
You know, given the times and some of the concerns that are being brought forward from the Black Lives Matter, and if you recall, last fall in November, there was a group of folks, I think it was in Cleveland, uh, Natalia, if you and Frank, uh, Jeff, or Pete, if you guys can help me out here, there was a playlist created around a group of folks who were waiting in line to vote. And a video that went viral, as a matter of fact, because there were some folks who ended up entertaining the people in line uh, with dancing, with music, and follow along. I found that extremely creative. And I think it was the Black Lives Matter, as well as the Georgia folks who were organizing, getting people to the polls, who basically put this whole idea of using music to inspire, to entertain to keep people occupied while they were in line to vote. And I thought that was an excellent presentation of how music can be used to motivate folks in a political environment. Jeff and uh, Michael, you probably should be dominating because you are performers from what I understand. I don't know if anybody else is. So I wanna, I wanna hear some of your own personal musical stories too, if I can put you on the spot afterwards. But on the political, I think it is important to recognize both the role that music plays musicians entering politics, whether directly to run, you know, whether we're talking about Uganda or other countries, you know, there have been prominent musicians who step up. And in the U.S., you know, during my race, I connected with Residente, who's a rapper who's been doing a lot of advocacy around Puerto Rican rights. And, you know, it is interesting and it is important to recognize that musicians, because they have a following have a lot of influence as individuals and as politicians. And I would love to know if in Massachusetts there have been any musicians. I mean, 
except for you, Jeff, I understand you are a musician too, who, who are in the legislature or who were first musicians. And of course, there are other famous rappers who have wanted to run for president and, you know, whether they were having a mental health crisis or if it was real, I think it's important to sort of talk about it too. It's interesting. I, I think of my own musical journey. So I started off, I remember I was in second grade they started a music program. I grew up in Milford, Mass. And my mother said, you can get free cello lessons through the school. We're going to sign you up. And I had no idea what a cello was, but I got this instrument and, you know, I played, I studied, I took private lessons. I became pretty good at it. I played in the uh, All-State District Orchestra and really was thinking that, hey, maybe this is going to be a career for me. And it's something I did up until uh, 12th grade. And then I picked up a guitar in, in my senior year of high school. And it changed my whole outlook on music. I mean, the cello was taking me in one direction and the guitar was going in a totally opposite direction. The cello is not something that you, if you play it alone, I'm not, I wasn't Yo-Yo Ma, so the sounds that came out of it weren't as beautiful as a, as a Yo-Yo Ma. And these people devote 10 to 15 hours a day playing their instrument. I wasn't that type of a, of a player. But it's not one that you go and sit in a nightclub and play and entertain people. They're not going to come. They're not going to listen. A cello is an instrument that requires the sounds. And I'll tell you, it really was formative for me in my work in government because the sounds that I made as a single cello player weren't that great. But when you put me in an orchestra surrounded by violinists and viola players and oboe players and tuba players and, and percussion and a conductor, getting us all to work together, where we understood as an orchestra that the sounds that we made were intended to complement the other sounds. And when we played together, it was absolutely beautiful and stunning. And that has stayed with me throughout my life. And I said, just imagine if the legislature operated where we didn't care who got the credit for any particular bill. We we're in this body to complement one another and to work as a team to bring out some great, great music. That's really what stuck in my head. Uh, the guitar gave me a little more flexibility. I didn't need a 50-piece orchestra in order to travel around. I could uh, play solo acts, and I was a nightclub entertainer from 1979 to probably 85. I still have my business cards, which says nightclub entertainer. And then I joined a band with uh, five people and actually have been we broke up after a while, but we got back together about 20 years ago, and we continue to play to this day. And what a great thing to step back from what I do as either a lawyer or as a legislator and go to a place where we can just make music and complement one another and develop sounds. That's what life's all about. And if you want to see a further exploration of this, I'm going to give a plug for a Disney Pixar movie today. And the movie is called Soul. Oh. And it's about a musician finding his way in life and getting that big opportunity and then having to meet his maker before he gets to play that opportunity. And it just goes through so many experiences. I love the scene where he talked about uh, being a musician and playing tunes and then 
going off into a zone. And one of the scenes in the movie is you're walking around in heaven and they take you. Well, you know when musicians get into that zone? Well, here is the zone. And I just watched that movie and I said, what an outstanding way to portray art and to portray life and how they really do uh, fit together very nicely. So Let I have me, a seven, uh, I was just going to say, I have a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins and we did watch it as a family. I'm really excited to hear, Jeff, that you watched it possibly as an adult and that you enjoyed it just as much as our family. So it is a family-friendly movie. It is a cartoon uh, sharing that. <laughs> You know, Jeff, I, I also just wanted to add that I'm really sorry that the death metal cello thing didn't work out. Just putting that out there. <laughs> I actually had my first band was the Electric Cello Orchestra. And I, you know, this is, you're talking like 1977, 78. And I was dying to figure out a way to electrify my cello so I could play loud music is the only way to go. But today, you can buy an electric cello right off the shelf. They didn't exist in the, in the late 70s. But uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, not the Supreme Court Justice, but his dad, who happened to be a poet from Massachusetts, said that most people go to their graves with the music still inside them. I tell people, and when I speak with groups, especially children's groups, I use that line. And I say, you've got a talent. You've got an ability. Let it out. Use that gift that you've been given, and you'll experience some great wonders in your life. Well, I would like to do a little bragging about my generation. Rock Around the Clock, to me, is the beginning of uh, rock and roll and rock music. Rock Around the Clock movie came out in, I don't know, about 1953, 54. It had Sidney Poitier in it. He was a teacher in uh, the inner city in New York, and a former country and western band, called Bill Haley and the Comets, came out with the song Rock Around the Clock. And I know rhythm and blues came before, but Rock Around the Clock really started the rock movement. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your strap bags up.
uh, Elvis Presley came, Little Richard, and the music lasted predominantly for 50 years. It was not hard to find all through those 50 years, early rock and roll music, early artists. And one of the things I'd like you to remember about the teenagers that supported and started rock and roll music is that, yes, Benny Goodman integrated the first orchestra, and people before Benny in the South and other places would sit on porches. It would be an integrated porch, and they'd pick music, and many Anglo people learned from Black musicians and players, and that's how they became proficient. But where did those individuals of the early rock and roll, what did they do later in their career? They were the student riders to Mississippi, breaking down the buses. When they performed rock and roll music, what happened to the audiences? They integrated. The audiences didn't pay attention to segregation, and people sat on the side, people sat on the other side. It was really partly that rock and roll generation that was backing the civil rights movement, at least in my opinion. So it was the music of the 50s through the 59, and the folk music came out of 59 and 60. And one of the greatest things the civil rights movement ever had, it had the songs, it had the music. And that was one of the things that I think really helped the civil rights movement. Michael, uh, you wanted to say something? Yeah, actually, that's a great lead-in to what I was about to say, uh, Frank, which is that, you know, I I appreciate what you saw. I saw a very similar kind of happening when it came to the use of the music, both in the civil rights culture and also in the community. But let me give you a little deeper history into what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, my involvement in music came about in the late 1960s, early 70s, when I was hired by a uh, top 40 radio station as the first DJ of color that was in the, uh, actually, I think I may have been like the third in the entire company. Uh, and this was Lynn Broadcasting. And at the time, they owned over, I think, 70 radio stations. So amongst the 70 radio stations, I was only one of three in the entire nation who, were, who was a person of color hired in a top 40 radio. Now, in context, there were all kinds of what were called then R&B stations, rhythm and blues stations. But let me give you a little more understanding and background in terms of R&B. R&B was a, was a uh, phrase that was coined by the music industry in order to change what up to the R&B label had been called race music. On the OK label. <laughs> the OK number of labels. And the executives who were doing that uh, labeled R&B in order to keep it segregated from, at the time, what was big band music and other music because they did not want R&B to grow any faster than what the executives wanted it. Country music was there. Again, country music was used as another sort of discrimination wall. And to this day, 
contemporary music is still broken up. If you go to some of the uh, industry publications, you'll still see these categories. And even if you look at some of the music awards, they're still based upon, quote, the category of music. And unfortunately, those categories, if you're a white executive in the music industry, you can be an executive in any of those genres of music across the board. But if you're a black executive, traditionally black executives are relegated to R&B or the other new term, urban contemporary. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because the historic systemic racism in the music actually is intended to keep people segregated. While at the beginning, rock and roll was actually an extension of the rhythm, if you will, of the R out of R&B. And that's why you had white and black artists working together. But if you notice, over time, rock became more and more homogenized in terms of white artists. Now, why was that? Because, again, there was this limitation on the part of the executives to define what black artists can do. And we're also going to define how much they can make. They also defined how much any artist could make. So music itself is, albeit a very universal, structural kind of bringing together, uh, I think, wonderful. I love rock music. I love R&B. I love classical. But I never have the opportunity to, in one station, if you will, uh, or in one outlet back in my day, to go and hear all of those genres and to be able to appreciate the interconnectivity of all of them. And I've got more to say about that, but I'll let you guys react to, uh, uh, to what I've sort of throw out there so far. To your point, Mike, there is a very famous, what I'll call homegrown executive who started Motown. that went into the crafting of those songs. They're really, really brilliant. Yes. Love Train, 
people all over the world, you know, like, uh, uh, like you, Frank, I can't sing, but you know, I want to hear more. Come on, bring it on. And then it's interesting to see, you know, to listen to, um, the two of you describe this. And as I was listening to you, I'm saying, I'm wondering, uh, what's going to happen moving forward because the industry has undergone a dramatic shift and a change in paradigm as to how music gets out. I don't know if I like this because the concept of a record album is a collection of songs, but now people are selling single songs or what they call these EPs with maybe three or four songs on them. And they're not going after the, the thematic aspect of an album, but just shoving songs out there. And, and they're not putting them on CDs anymore. It's all in these formats, uh, Apple Music. And I'm, I was thinking, well, Michael, you need to get Apple Music and create a playlist, which will contain all of those songs you want to listen to, because you can listen to them uh, in whatever order and whatever format you want. You're not constrained to what some producer or some uh, you know, artist has, says, this is what you have to listen to and this is what you have to listen to in this order. So that's a dramatic shift. And, and that's and I happening. See so many uh, shifts that are going on out there. It's, it's incredible. And I'm wondering and that's if happening. that's going to change things. Oh, it has already changed things. Yeah. For example, uh, you know, the invention of the iPod, for example. Uh, has created the ability of any individual to do exactly what you just described. I can create my own uh, playlist, uh, play it anytime I want in any order that I want. And it has diminished the need for uh, albums. And I'm much more interested uh, in now listening to a whole variety of things and then putting it into my own personal playlist. People can make their own albums now. You don't need a company telling you what to listen to. And many of the artists, praise uh, praise be, have taken advantage of that. Uh, one of my favorite groups, uh, Nine Inch Nails, for example, has uh, they've gone into the whole area. Yeah, I know. That's funny for some people. You know, when I'm at a Nine Inch Nails concert, for example, uh, I'm one of, again, probably a handful of people of color inside of the room, or at least I used to be, probably not anymore, because uh, anybody who likes real hard, nice, great electric and contemporary kinds of carved music, man, I mean, you've got to love Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Let me ask you uh, this. They're the you, source you, of you, my, you, sorry. Jeff, there I, ever, I just want to ask him quickly. Yeah. You know, you talk about going to a concert. Do you think you're ever going to go to a concert again? In light of the pandemic, I hope so. I do too, but I'm I hope curious. so. Uh, uh, I love the experience of being there. And Natalia, you were going to say you're a Nine Inch Nails fan too. No, or? but my husband <laughs> is, and the this is the source of many many fights when I do not want Nine Inch Nails playing loud in the house. So I will I will send him over to a concert with you. Oh please, time. please, please, Paul and I will you know we'll have a great time because you, you know I mean when you when you go through uh, uh, like one of their songs, God is Dead. Uh, you've got to play it loud too. I mean, you've got to play it loud. And then there's spiral gyra, uh, you know, where you want to sit down and you just want to listen and you want to be entertained by the drums and the horns and the wonderful piece. And then there's ludicrous. So the whole idea of music has changed. Let me make an economic uh, uh, point. I physically own the music. I physically have the CDs or the vinyl. Today, people 
are buying music that they do not own. It simply is in the cloud, and when they stop paying the monthly fee, that music goes away. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, to some degree, you're correct, Frank, that the service goes away. But any smart consumer, uh, heck, man, if I'm listening to something in the cloud, I'm going to download it. I'm going to put it on my computer. I'm going to then put it in my CD. I'm going to put it in my iTunes or on my iPod or on my little mini, uh, 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 you know, my thumb drive. So once that goes away or dies, it's gone. No, you still have the music because you downloaded it. You still have it. It's yours. When you're paying for the service, you can download that music onto your computer. Now, again, you could spend days and do nothing more than download pieces, but so you don't have access to the millions of different kinds of music out there. But the ones you like, once you see it, you download it. That's what kids do. The other problem, Michael, is on a podcast, you cannot have a musical podcast. That's correct. It's an airplay issue. Um, exactly. The, That's a copyright issue. Right. Um, and the situation there is ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, SoundX, all of the licensing bodies license per genre. That is, a radio station license is one thing. Streaming radio station, as opposed to the over-air radio station, is quite another. Then there are other ancillary rights, and then finally podcasts. And all of these things have separate invoicing, so it can get kind of expensive to do podcast work because the licensing bodies are going to assume the worst. Yeah, and part of that, too, goes back to the idea that, and here's the real telling part, follow the money. Follow Mm -hmm. the money. If you follow the money... The licensing groups have control over who gets to play it. But the question becomes, how much does the artist get from the licensing company when that particular product is sold? That was the formation of SoundX. SoundExchange was formed specifically to provide income to the artists for the performance uh, because otherwise the record company outright owns the master. The artist was expected to go out and make money on the tour circuit. So the performances on their live performances, the artist then, and here's basically the percentage. If you were an artist and you went into tower records to make an album, tower records would have you sign an upfront contract. And that contract would say, okay, we're going to pay you for doing the album. We're going to pay you for performing in the studio. And if there's any, anything that you get, Other than that, it will be at this percentage rate. And the percentage rate, I don't think I ever saw a percentage rate for an artist after they made an album that was over 18%. In other words, the executives, the radio, uh, and the the record company are making gobs of money off of your performance, off of your music, off of your creativity. And in some instances, if you go historically, now let me get, take this back to the 1930s and 20s when suddenly taping and all of these particular instruments became popular. When you look at black artists or artists of color, they, in some instances, were paid, uh, Robert Johnson, for example, was paid, I think it was two bottles of liquor and 20 bucks, which to him was a lot of money and some good liquor. They taped him for over eight hours. Then they went off with the tapes and sold them for God knows how much money, but all he made was the 20 bucks and the two bottles of liquor. 
It's definitely a tough industry to make a living in. Probably accounts for the reason I left it very early on in my life. But, uh, you know, I think of these questions and these issues. So I have a, a son who's a musician. He's 26 years old and does a great job at it, but it's not something that he can make a living at. And he just came out with a new EP. I've been battling back and forth. I keep saying, hey, I, I subscribe to Apple Music. How come it's not on there? And, and he says, well, you can go to Spotify. I said, well, I don't have Spotify. He said, well, you can go to Bandcamp and it's on Bandcamp for free. I said, well, if it's on Bandcamp for free, how are you making any money producing this music? And uh, it's just amazing how that all works. But I do want to go back to album making because I still love the thematic beauty of an album that also contains visual artwork and contains a series of songs that an artist put together because they wanted to say something. And, uh, you know, sometimes they didn't tell you directly what they were trying to say, and it was up to you to try and figure it out. And, uh, you know, that's to me, is a piece of art that's uh, leaving us. And um, I so enjoy the music. And uh, when the pandemic hit, I was playing for 20 years every Thursday night with my band. And all of a sudden, in March of 2020, we couldn't get together because, you know, it's a small group of people. We're not in a bubble. So we had to stop. And it was driving me crazy because I looked forward to this every day. And uh, and I've always wanted to make a CD and uh, actually bought studio recording equipment back. I think I was about 47, 48 years old, got this elaborate equipment and said, for my 50th birthday, I'm going to produce a CD. I'm on the verge of my 60th birthday, and I can tell you that CD is still not done yet. Uh, we're working on it. It's a work in progress. But uh, when I was locked up in my basement in, in COVID, I decided to use today's technology and put together an album myself and record it in my basement. And that's the uh, CD that I affectionately refer to as the COVID tapes. And what I wanted to do was to take both songs that other artists had done, but they were particularly meaningful to me in my lifetime and do my vocals. But with today's technology, I could buy the tracks that were out there in the internet world and put them in my system and record my own vocals. So I did a thematic album that was something that was important to me and I was just doing it for myself. But then after I had recorded the songs, I said, ah, this is pretty calming. I, I enjoy it. I ought to create a CD. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be, yeah, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer. Let it be But though they may be parted There is still a chance that they will see There will be an answer 
Let it be. 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 There will be an answer. Let it be. 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 Whisper words of wisdom. Let it be. you make your own CD and you know sent the tracks in and it's about uh, 16 tracks sent it in had the CDs professionally printed and put in cases and you know I now hand them out to folks and uh, I actually gave one to someone a couple days ago and he says you know that music is so calming to me I enjoy just sitting back and listening to it and it's just it's been a great experience the funny thing about it is so many people have told me I don't own a CD player and there's no CD player in my car. Can you tell me where I can get it digitally? <laughs> and I said, well, you can't get it digitally because I can't monetize some of the songs because of copyright laws. So I can give it to you, but I can't put it up on an upload service because that would monetize it. So I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. I have some art that I'd love to share, but we need some technology that's a little old to allow people. And I've actually had some folks who said, well, why don't you put it on vinyl? I said, are you kidding me? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Jeff, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll ask my grandson, who's 14, how you do that. And he'll have an answer for you within a couple of days. Uh, I mean, we're, I love it. I love that. <laughs> we're dating ourselves here because music uh, and a whole lot of other mediums are so modular now. Uh, and the other thing, too, that is curious, too, about your story, Jeff, is why not make a music video 
I mean, you know, all you need is a phone and, uh, <laughs> you know, and someone to stand in the audience, uh, you know, and you can hey, create you know, your I, own music video. I will share with you that Pete took care of that uh, <laughs> because just before the pandemic, Pete had said, hey, we have this beautiful studio down here at the TV station. Why don't you bring your band in and record a bunch of songs? And we actually did that. And uh, uh, I am in the process. I, I think about five of them have been posted on the Internet right now. Uh, and we're releasing the songs uh, on uh, YouTube videos uh, every couple of weeks to it's just amazing that yeah. you can't get into the studio anymore, but we did, uh, we took your advice and we did it back in uh, 20, I think, did we do that in 2019, Pete? Yeah, that was a fun session. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I, I am impressed with what you can find on the, uh, on the net that go back to uh, Frank and my generation with regard to TV performances, with regard to televised, um, uh, concerts, uh, which go back to uh, also just the, the creation of video um, or taping, if you will, uh, of private sessions, whether it's in a nightclub. Uh, and one of them that comes to mind is a piece by Gil Scott Heron, which goes back to some of the protest music uh, in the 60s. Gil Scott Heron was a member of a group called The Last Poets. Now, the only reference that our audience is going to get to this, because you're going to have to go look it up yourself, because we really, because of a lot of federal and state uh, and ethical rules, can't, uh, can't give you a, uh, a link to this. Hey, I'm taking but, out my Apple Music right now. As you there see. you go. <laughs> uh, and it's called uh, When the Revolution Comes. Uh, and the, uh, and the song itself uh, back in the sixties was one of the precursors to rap music. Uh, it's very explicit. So I'll give you that warning. If you're a listener and you're trying to find it, it's very explicit. Uh, it may have some racial epithets in it that may not be of uh, uh, compelling to you. And again, put it in its context in the time. Uh, but the, uh, but the, uh, and I'm not sure exactly who did it, but they went back and there was a taping. Oh, there we go. The Last Poets. That's the uh, Jeff is showing uh, for those of you who, uh, you know, who may not be aware. Jeff just hold up, uh, held up for all of us to see the cover of the album uh, for this group. But they went back and took one of the club uh, performances and turned it into a music video. So that's one of the other pieces that I'm just very impressed with uh, by today's technology, that they're able to do that. And then, Natalia, uh, if you don't mind, give Paul a reference to this. Nine Inch Nails, uh, and this is free also. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, which does some wonderful things in terms of really recognizing and honoring their fans and consumers. Uh, there was a co concert that they did uh, and they played this piece. It was a very extended version. And what they did was ask the fans to send in the telephone video clips to a particular site. And they took all of those telephone clips of this particular concert and they turned it into a video with all of these little clips 
And the editing was phenomenal. Phenomenal when you consider that you've got hundreds of little snippets and pieces, and then someone is editing that to where the music is consistent. Um, I'm very encouraged by today's music, by the ability of people, again, to preserve what they like, create their own albums. Uh, and I have great hopes for, again, the melting pot that music can be. Uh, and I think it's one of the places where we're going to find that the equity and the overcoming of systemic racism is probably going to happen in music much faster than it will in other parts of our, uh, of our culture. Now, Leah, you work for the United Nations. Are you aware that in the late 50s, early 60s, UNICEF came out with a series of albums called High Neighbor? And they were albums from countries all around the world. Uh, and I don't know, they may have come out with albums since then, but it, that was quite a, an interesting breakthrough. And in children's music, Natalia, uh, there are old nursery rhymes and uh, stories uh, for toddlers. Is that music, are your kids listening to that music or what, what, are, they, what, what are they driving you crazy with? Thanks for that question. Uh, uh, they Frank. want to hear their mother play the violin. Well, <laughs> share with us that. Their mother. So the, I mean, there's a lot that I can share. First, I was also in an orchestra. Yes, playing the violin as as a kid, but I I quickly stopped playing music. But I did want to share that, you know, on the point that um, you were making, Michael, about the sort of inequities within the U.S. market. The Greek market was, you know, I grew up in Greece, so there was Greek music, but there was also the American music, and there were the musicians who would come to Greece in the summers. So I saw R.E.M., I saw Metallica live, I saw, you know, Manu Chao, and because it wasn't really, you know, it was whoever, whichever artist would be in Greece in the summer, that's who we would watch. So it did give us a, a nice sort of breadth, but it is important to recognize that the dominance of the U.S. industry, or at least English language music, is, is quite prominent. To your point, Frank, my husband, who is more musically interested than me, plays uh, pretty mainstream adult music and my kids, you know, get asked, my, my son is a three-year-old, he, he has a bit of a stutter, so he goes to speech therapy and the speech therapist was like, what's your favorite song? And she's waiting for a nursery rhyme and he goes, thunder, hear the thunder, lightning. And she's like, oh, I know that song, okay. <laughs> so they listen to the music we listen to and it's, and it's, quite, um, it's quite relaxing as a parent to not have to listen to bad songs. Although I do think that nursery rhymes have a place. So I sing to them, I like to sing. I sing to them every night, putting them to sleep, and I sing Greek um, sort of bedtime songs, lullabies that my parents used to sing to me, and that's pretty much the only Greek they hear, unfortunately. Well, why don't you sing to us? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> that's it for another week. Thanks for joining us. And for our more perfect panel, Jeff, Mike, Natalia, and our more perfect host, Frank, this is your more perfect announcer, Peter J. saying so long for now. Yeah, you see how I played that? Everybody's smiling. And I'd like to also give a shout out to Jeff Shaw, the person who wrote our musical theme. You can visit him at audionautics.com. He does it for free. Thank you, Jeff. And of course, a shout out to our more perfect technology people like Keith Palmieri. If you'd like to express your opinion, you can write us at info, I-N-F-O 
at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. For everyone, I'm Peter Jay. Thanks for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio. We're all connected to each other, biologically, to the Earth, chemically, to the rest of the universe. Atomically. I think nature's imagination is so much greater than man's. He's never going to let us relax. relax, relax, relax. We live in an in-between universe where things change all right but according to patterns, rules, or as we call them, laws of nature. I'm this guy standing on a planet. Really, I'm just a speck. I'm just a speck compared with a star. The planet is just another speck. To think about all of this, to think about the vast emptiness of space. There's billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atom that go into it but the way those atoms are put together the cosmos is also within us we're made of stark stuff we are away of the cosmos and know itself across the sea of space the stars are other sun we've traveled this way before and there is much to be learned we're all connected each other biologically to the earth chemically to the rest of the universe atomic find it elevating and exhilarating to discover that we live in a universe which permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we body are traceable to phenomenon in the cosmos. That makes me want to grab people in the street and say, have you heard this? The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are away of the cosmos and know itself. There's this tremendous mass of waves all over in space, which is the light bouncing around the room, going from one thing to the other, and it's all really there, really, really there. But you gotta stop and think about it, about the complexity, and really get the pleasure. It's all really there, really, really there. The inconceivable nature of nature. To think about all of this, to think about the vast emptiness of space. Billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are away of the cosmos. Know itself across the sea of space. The stars are other sun. We've traveled this way before, and there is much to be learned.